Uh, I, don't, I don't know how long this uh, series is going to take. It will probably take two, maybe three sessions. <laughs> There's some recommended reading I want to just suggest to you. Um, I'm borrowing a lot from a book called Fashion to Rain, Chris Vallotton. I've done a lot of research myself. So a few of you guys sound like you've heard of it or read it, and it's, it's really phenomenal. And we're going to work through um, a lot of the revelations there. But here's why we're going to take a little bit of time to it. There's two ways that you can um, defend a position of truth that's kind of controversial in the Bible. And one of them is doing this. La, 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 not listening. And the other part is to like dive in head first. I'm going to get everything on this. I'm going to find out. And a, a couple weeks ago, someone called me up and uh, they had an issue about um, one of the topics I was, I was talking about. And they're like, well, how about this? And I said, well, that's fine, but... You're using that scripture, but you really, if you really want to take that position, you should use this scripture because that scripture is actually a lot more strong of an argument. <laughs> and then like, I, I talked about that. And so what I want to do for us in this topic is not just to simply kind of gloss over. We want to go and we want to know this topic better than just a surfacey poll quote, you know, cherry pick some scripture. We actually want to know the truth here. I never want to shy away from the Bible. The more I get into it and the more I dive into it, it's so life-giving. And so there's a lot of scary things sometimes that come on the surface if we don't know the, the Bible as much and, and don't have the time to get into understand all the meanings of it and, and the things. And it can be really misleading sometimes. And this topic is one of those things. And so we're going to take a little bit of a journey um, on this topic, and I hope to be speed on it. Hopefully it's um, enlightening to you as it is to me. Uh, Eric kind of stole my thunder that I knew that God destines, or, uh, destines women to be powerful because I'm married to Camille Knopf. And it just, you just, you're like, God, this is your problem, not my problem here. <laughs> so, uh, but this, uh, this topic, many well-intended believers, I believe there's a lot of hearts, well-intended believing hearts, um, that it develop a theology that proactively uses the Bible to disqualify women from the most formidable leadership roles, especially in the church. There are a shocking number of Christian leaders who are convinced that women are not as qualified, not as called, not as gifted, and not as positioned to lead as men are. And so at the outset, this is, this is my musings to you. This is the information I've been finding sourcing. Um, I, I hope it, at the least this inspires you to dive in these topics yourself. If you don't agree, totally cool. I'm not saying that you need to believe everything I believe. I'm totally fine if you disagree with some of the stuff we share. But I hope at the least it drives you into a research it for yourself. Cool? So let me give you the three most restrictive verses on women. We're just going to go right into it, right? <laughs> 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35. The women are to keep silent in churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husband at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Another kind of one that seems a little odd, but still restrictive, is 1 Corinthians 11, 5, and 7. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as a woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it 
but if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. So some pretty challenging passages. And we're going to go ahead first into these things, but what I need to do is I need to take us on that journey first. And let me give you a few facts. When I was going to the, the New Testament, one of the things is we just finished the healing um, series, I started was taking notes on women. Here's some fascinating things that I found. The very first person ever mentioned to be filled with the Holy Spirit in the New Testament was a woman. The first person who made any prophetic declaration in the New Testament was a woman. The first mention of a prophecy concerning the Messiah was a prophetess named Anna. Women were the first ones to financially support Jesus and the disciples on their mission. An entire city in Samaria was saved by the woman at the well who went and told the entire town who believed in Jesus because of her. A woman almost stopped the crucifixion. Pilate's wife says, I'm having crazy dreams. Don't kill that man. Right? (laughs) It's important to know that not a single female was involved in the crucifixion. Not a single one. That's interesting to note because oftentimes women get the bad rap for causing the fall, right? Oh, it's women who took the apple, right? Well, it's kind of men who crucified the Savior. So it's like, <laughs> pick your poison. <laughs> women were the first ones to go see the tomb and follow up if Jesus really had risen. Remember, Jesus was like, I'm going to raise on the third day. Like, he's like doing this. And all the disciples were like, Uh, I guess that didn't work, you know? And it was two women who went and like said, we think Jesus probably was being honest there. It was a woman, Mary Magdalene, who first encountered the risen Christ and she was the only person who touched Jesus before his ascension. There's a few facts. So let's counter, let's let's table that in the back of our mind as, as we think about this topic. And when Jesus died on the cross, he became a sin offering for us and destroyed the curse against us. The curse against us. And including that curse is the curse that caused men to rule over women. And it's really important that we understand what happened in the Garden of Eden and the curse that first established all these patterns and all this this dogma of men domineering over women. So let's take a look at that. It's Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 7. And I'm going to read a whole lot of scripture here. I always volunteer to send my notes to Emma who asks. So if you're not the note-taking type, then um, we can provide them to you. Then God said, let us make man in our, everyone say our, our image according to our likeness. This is the first time that God mentions that there's like more than one person besides him. He could have said, let's make man in my image. But no, our image, right? The Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And let them, everyone say them, Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. Everyone say male and female. He created them. Now this is written in chapter one. Chapter two, God creates Adam. God here is saying, we are going to make mankind, we're going to make mankind male and female, we're going to make them after my image, and we are going to give them rule. Are you with me? God said, let us, the Holy Spirit, Father and Son, he created them male and female, meaning that there's multiple parts. And we know that a woman wasn't just a unique creation. God, from man, took woman out of man. Remember, it says, like, God took out of the side 
some translations say rib, but it actually means like side. And it's interesting that the compassionate side of our, you know, you know, we have our heart, we identify as a compassionate side. It's kind of significant that women are oftentimes more compassionate than men. I think that's probably a prophetic declaration about the essence of women that God took from Adam, woman. And when that happened, I believe because of what God said about his nature in creating mankind, that Adam, the moment that part of him was taken, that Adam was less like God's nature. Because Eve represented part of God's nature as well. That as soon as God extracted Eve from his side, that Adam was incomplete and Eve was incomplete. Genesis chapter 2, the Bible says that God made a helper suitable. Now these words, like oftentimes the word helper and a suitable helper, like these, these can be kind of thorny uh, words. Let's dive into it just briefly. The Hebrew word for suitable means corresponding to or opposite of. Suitable, corresponding to or opposite of, meaning that you have two opposite parts that were meant to be together that correspond to each other. Suitable. It means that woman is the opposite components that when put together with man, they represent the deity of God, the representation of his essence. And it makes sense when we think of Ephesians 5.31 that says that a man shall be joined to a woman and they shall become one flesh, reconciling what God originally designed in creation. Now the word helper, like, right, it's kind of like, almost like a derogatory word, like servant, Helper, the Hebrew word for helper is ezer, E-Z-E-R, and it is used 19 times in the Old Testament, twice to describe a wife and 17 times to describe God himself. So the next time you want to like jab like, you know, hey, helper, you know, like my helpmate, you know, it's like, that's actually a compliment because God's identifying himself with that kind of lingo. It's like, you just paid me the comparative term to, to God. Genesis chapter 3. Let's look at this at the fall. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that that tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her, to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. A few things to note in this passage. It's very, very, very important that we note that in the garden, man and woman already co-reigned in the garden. Everyone say co-reigned. In the garden, man and woman co-reigned. But the serpent knew that Eve was no slave. If God had designed Eve to be just simply the woman who like cleans the cave and was not allowed to like talk to anybody else, right? The serpent would have just gone to Adam. But, but the serpent recognizing the equality between Adam and Eve just went to Eve he, and, um, and deceived her. And since Adam co-reigned with Eve, he trusted her insight. If Adam was such the domineering husband, he would have said, woman, what are you talking about? You know, he would have like, he wouldn't have listened to it. 
But since he co-reigned with Eve, when she said, let us eat of this, what he did is that he took her insight as being influential and powerful over God's command. Now that is a sin for sure, but we're missing the essence that, that Adam is, is collaborating, is, is, is um, collectively sharing in the wisdom with Eve there. And so therefore we can conclude that Eve was a powerful and influential person. She was not a subservient maid. It's also important to know what happened at the fall. As soon as they fell, Adam and Eve ate the fruit. Um, they changed masters, right? They were given dominion. They were said to rule over all the garden. When they were deceived and ate the fruit, they changed masters. And because they were given authority over everything on the planet, the entire earth came under control of the serpent when they yielded to him and the serpent became master of all mankind. It's in how Romans 5.12 says that because one man sinned, all of the world sinned and fell. And so God shows up on the scene. He's like, Adam, where are you? And he's like, you know, hiding. He's like, oh, why are you hiding? He's like, I'm naked. <laughs> and God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree in which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam responds this. The woman in whom you gave me gave me the fruit. He totally deflects it. Then God said to Eve, what is this that you've done? Translation, meaning, God is saying, I put you in Adam's life to stand next to him, to authenticate him, to give him perspective, and instead of offering your wisdom, you helped him inspire him to disobey me. And instead of repenting, Eve said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Do you see any repentance in any of these passages? You see any, oh Lord, I repent, forgive me. No, they're deflecting and they're doing the blame game. I wonder how God would have responded if Adam and Eve just would have owned it and repented. But we don't know. <laughs> and notice what's absent here too. God did not ask the serpent anything. Why? Because he knows that Satan is the father of lies and no truth resides in him. And so God then begins to curse first. Everyone say first. God first curses the serpent. Genesis chapter 3. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, everyone say enmity, between you and the woman, and between you, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Some fascinating details on this passage. First is that the curse spoken of the serpent, the serpent was that there would be enmity. Kind of a weird word, but basically means hostility. That there be hostility between the woman and the serpent. I never realized that the first curse was against the serpent. The curse for enmity wasn't against the woman, it was against the serpent. Basically saying that um, woman is nature's natural predator against the devil. Basically they're like, Satan, because you did this, that woman is now coming after you. That's essentially what it says. Just how like a shark is the natural predator to like a fish. Women here are the natural predator to the serpent. 
The curse against Satan is like, I would have sent the man, but ooh, you really got me mad. I'm sending the woman after you now. (laughs) Enmity between you and the woman and between her seed. What does that mean? Well, women obviously are the gateway for all um, other life to come through. And the hostility basically means that will be, the hostility will be reproduced in every woman who gives birth to every child until the savior of the world is born who comes and defeats the serpent. And he says that he, do you notice how that, um, that the scripture says that I will put enmity between you and the woman and her seed. And then it says, and he will, bru- or you will bruise him and he will crush your head. It's like, well, where, where do we get the he there? You know, like, did we lose track of our context? No, he's given a prophetic declaration of the crucifixion. That Christ was bruised on the cross, but he crushed the head of Satan. Saying, woman is going to breed enmity in every single child until the Savior is born. And when the Savior is born, you will bruise him on the cross, but he will crush your head. So naturally... The nature's predator to the serpent is woman. So think about this. If you're an enemy and you're going after an opponent, your goal is to isolate, disempower, and neutralize your opponent. When you have a, an enemy, you are trying to get them out of the game. You're trying to isolate them. You are trying to minimize their effectiveness. And it's no wonder that ever since the Garden of Evil, the devil has worked so hard to oppress women. He knows that if women are empowered, there will be a new depth of compassion, love, understanding, caring, and peace on this planet. And also the deep hatred for everything the serpent gives birth to. The serpent comes to kill, steal, and destroy women. That's your life calling right there. You are put on this earth to bring life, to give, to restore, and create. You are the predator to the serpent. And next, God pronounces a curse against women. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That verse has had the most negative effect and impact on women. Is that the curse of the husband shall rule over them. The Hebrew word there for rule is mashal, which translates to have dominion. It's important, again, to remember who reigned in the Garden of Eden? They co-reigned. Adam and Eve co-reigned together in the garden. Now, what about the curse to the men? Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 through 19. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all of the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Adam was not cursed because he listened to his wife. He was cursed because he valued her opinion more than God's command. Adam valued Eve's perspective and obeyed her rather than God's command. And in spite of Adam's efforts, the curse was that in spite of his efforts, the ground would yield thorns. It would yield thistles. In other words, instead of creation cooperating with Adam, it would resist him. Now when Jesus was put on the cross, what kind of crown did they put on Jesus' head? Crown of thorns. Could it be when Jesus says, it is finished, and he has a crown of thorns, and the curse in the garden even is that there's going to be thorns produced against you, that he's declaring that the curse is broken. And no longer would our efforts be doomed from the start for man. 
No longer will we work hard and not reap the benefits of our labor. And from that time forward in the New Testament, we have the principle that whatever a man sows, he will also reap. The principle of sowing and reaping is countercultural to the curse of man, which says that you will plow and it will yield thorns and thistles. It will not grow for you. And we need to know that when Jesus rose again, the curse that originated in the Garden of Eden, it was broken. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Right there. Christ redeemed us from the curse. Can it get any more plain than that? Having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Romans 8.2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Death was defeated. The effects of the fall were defeated at the cross. So in light of these things, we understand the curse. We understand the assignment of the curse. And then we understand what Jesus did in response to that and abolishing the curse. What makes us think that men are freed from the curse, but women are not? What makes us think that the curse for men was the only thing that was abolished, but not the curse against women? And we know that God did not abolish the curse for the serpent. Women, you are still charging after him. <laughs> but we still have the curse. The modern day church, I believe, still has the curse against women that men shall always dominate over them. Not just dominate over them, but dominate over them in the name of God. And isn't it silly that every Christian probably in this room thinks, oh, a woman could run for governor, run for president, be a CEO of a corporation, but be an elder in church? Whoa, no, 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 no. We only let that go to the experts. <laughs> right? Does anyone like notice that juxtaposition a little bit? And before we dive into the tough scriptures, which I don't know if we'll get to tonight, we need to recognize three tragic errors that the church at large has made and continues to make in arriving at this place where we have um, women that are still in the God's name dominated by men. Think about this. I'm going to divert, may I? If women are the natural predator to Satan, isn't half the population decommissioned from going after Satan right now? Wouldn't you think God would say like, hey, I have commissioned women to go kick the devil's booty and yet we're saying, women, you don't have the authority to go do that. You stay back there. Leave that to the tough guys. But it is in the curse against the serpent that the women would be chasing them out. Could it be that we have half of the church engaged in defeating the power of the enemy because we have half of the women that are sitting back told that they need to be quiet and submissive? Are you guys awake? Could it be that we have half the church whose mission is to defeat the works of the enemy and we have the number one Gender that is equipped to do that on the sidelines. I'm just saying. So three tragic flaws. The first is this, is number one, how, uh, understand how to interpret and apply the Bible. The modern church is repeating many of the mistakes of the Pharisees. They, what did the Pharisees do? They protected rules over relationship, do they not? I mean, they, like Jesus healed somebody like, whoa, you healed him on a Sunday. You can't do that. You know, like, or probably it was actually Saturday back then. But anyways, but they were like all like, they took rules over the authority of individuals. Isn't the law made for man, not man made for law? 
And the Pharisees, they put people under the spell of the law to adopt a slave mentality to the law, no matter what the expense of people. And people, you know, want to, to get all huffy-puffy about, well, we believe every word of God, you know, but we are, we believe every word of God for sure, but we are not called to blindly apply every word universally. Let me say that again. We believe every word of God, but we are not called to blindly apply every word universally. Just as Jesus healed on the Sabbath. And the main critique in this topic is that some of the revelations against these passages to kind of redeem them, that they are in contradiction to them. And such people that have those objections, they want to um, say that you can apply every word of God literally and universally. That every word in the Bible can be applied universally and literally without thinking of the ramifications and without thinking about the consequences. And uh, don't take this sort of the wrong way, but it's actually impossible to literally apply every scripture universally. It's impossible to universally apply every scripture literally. Let me give you... Um, Second Corinthians 3, 5, and 6, listen to this, what it says. Not that we are adequate in ourselves, but consider anything as coming from ourselves. But our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Listen to this. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The Word of God without the Spirit of God is death. The word of God without the spirit of God is death. We are missing the heart and the spirit of God if we're applying scriptures and its, it's, its result is death. We are misapplying the scriptures then. The word of God is written in such a way that we actually need the Holy Spirit to help us guide and find application. And we must understand the situational, contextual, that was a good word, thank you. We must understand the situational, contextual, and cultural backgrounds of the scriptures. People get up in arms about women, right? Oh, well, there's a scriptures against us. Well, can I give you a few conflicting scriptures? I mean, it's, it's, nothing should change your salvation here. But I'm just, if we're going to talk about, well, the word says this. Well, let me give you a few words says this. Paul to the Galatians and in uh, Galatians 5, uh, 2, says, Do not be circumcised. If you get circumcised, Christ is of no value to you. <laughs> Acts chapter 16. Paul took Timothy and circumcised him. Which is it? We had to make that choice for Maverick just recently. <laughs> and these are grown adults. Imagine, like, hey, let's hang out. Yeah, what do you have in mind? I'll, I'll show you when you get there. <laughs> Paul, 1 Corinthians 10, don't eat food sacrificed to idols. 1 Corinthians 8, we know there are no other gods, so eat the tasty meat, it's cheaper. Jesus, honor your mother and father. Whoever speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. That's Matthew 15. Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother and father and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How about the end times? Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and various places. There will be famines and earthquakes. Matthew 24. How about Isaiah 2.4? Talking about the end times. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. And it's only when we understand the heart of God that we can apply the knowledge of the scriptures in a way that embraces his purposes. 
When we know God's heart, we can embrace his scriptures and apply it with his heart. We're too busy trying to apply the literal word of God at the, the expense of his heart. Jesus never chose the law at the expense of heart. So we must look at the Holy Spirit and ask for contextual understanding and situational positions for culture before we universally and blindly just take every single word and try and universally apply it. The second thing is that we need to understand when the Bible is documentary or commentary. For many people, it's hard to understand that not only are there hundreds of contrasting scriptures, but also that much of the Bible is God's commentary on man and not God's commentary on how to live life. There's a very specific difference there. God is a commentary on man, a documentary. He's given us a story, and we can't take that as the commentary on how to live life. A few examples. Abraham lied to the king telling him that his wife was his sister. That's awkward. Abraham, when his wife could not conceive, took a concubine. I don't think God's saying, hey, if your wife is having trouble, go take another woman, right? Moses killed an Egyptian. David sent a woman's husband to war so he could sleep with the wife. Esther won basically a sex contest to win favor with the king because she was so good in bed. I mean, literally, right? Now, if we were to say, oh, the best way for me to earn favor with the president is to go like sleep with the president and then I'll be, you know, get my position. We need to understand that God sometimes is absent from the behavior of man because he's not going to try and, and, and he, he's given us the, the commentary on the man, not the commentary on what you should do. So we have the stories of people that are broken, making mistakes, but we have his heart and his purpose to glean from it. How about Solomon? Thought to be the wisest man in the world. He wrote all of Proverbs and some of the most profound truths to live by. But yet he also wrote Ecclesiastes, which is like written by Eeyore. <laughs> Everything's terrible, you know? Time after time, he talks about these, these great things, oftentimes uh, rejecting half of the Proverbs he wrote. And he basically says that all of this is meaningless. He says all of it's vanity, which basically says all of this is, is worthless, it's, it's meaningless. And, he, and here's a couple of specific ones. In Proverbs 16 and also in 23, he says, how much better is wisdom than gold? And then in Ecclesiastes 2, he then asks, why is he so wise? Folly and fate come both to the wise and the fool. Wisdom, he said, this too is vanity, worthless. Proverbs 13, a good man leaves an inheritance for his children. Ecclesiastes 2, remember this is the same author. It is great evil to labor with skill and wisdom and give a legacy to someone who has not labored with them. <laughs> Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, right? Ecclesiastes 10.19, money is the answer to everything. Literally, that's what it says. So for those who want to say, I'm going to apply every truth of God literally and universally, you can go and say, it's all about the Benjamins, buddy, because money is the answer to everything the Bible tells me. That is, just, that is just a big of an error as any other perversion of the scripture. And we understand the context of Ecclesiastes. We understand that Solomon had lost his way with a relationship with God and was at a low point with his 
relationship with God. But yet, God permitted the authentic place of his heart to memorialize the musings of his downtrodden heart to be eternally with us in the scriptures. Because God has said, I'm not, if you know my heart, the words won't offend you. If you know my purposes, you know my heart, no matter what the words that are captured in here, you'll be able to look through the lens of love and adoration. You'll look through the lenses of my purposes and you will not look through the lens of restriction. Number three, we need to understand when God uses situations as a narrative, everyone say narrative. We need to understand that when God uses situations as a narrative to speak direction to us. We have to understand that God uses situations, cultures of the day to make statements about divine order in our lives. But the misunderstanding that the narrative, the story, the backdrop is just the the backdrop to God's instruction has gotten a lot of Christians in a lot of trouble, particularly Christians in slavery. We, um, We can confuse God's commands with God's narrative. God commanded instruction for how people should treat one another when it comes to authority, being in authority and under authority. But the narrative to those verses was slavery. And God used the narrative of slavery to give us commands on how we should treat all people in authority. Colossians 3.22, slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth with not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Colossians 4.1, masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. During the Civil War, many devout Christians fought in favor of slavery because they thought God had given them that right in the scriptures. Many God-fearing, honest Christians looked at the scriptures and they thought that the context of God speaking to authority with the backdrop of slavery mandated that there are slaves among people. And for us, it feels like so obvious, like, well, of course not, right? I believe that the same revolution that happened with the Civil War in liberating slaves from the scriptures is going to be happening with liberating women from the scriptures. And sadly, 620,000 people died in the Civil War over this issue. Galatians 5.1 says, But it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Even the biggest scholars having the full scriptures could not see that God was redeeming them from all forms of slavery. But they couldn't see past that God happened to use the example, the cultural setting at the time of slavery to say, I'm going to speak to you about authority, but don't misinterpret it that I'm ordaining slavery. And we missed it. Jesus made a powerful statement to this exact end. Luke chapter 8, Luke 8, verse 18, the first part, says, so take care how you listen. Everyone say How? Take care how you listen. We get so caught up in the what we hear, right? We get so caught up in the the, the literal that we completely miss the point of how we should be hearing. How many know that the devil also knows the Bible? Satan quoted Psalm 91, 
trying to get Jesus to jump off the ledge and ultimately commit suicide. I've talked about that many times before. And in that situation, it is good that Jesus did not literally, universally, and blindly apply the Bible. Because we'd be in a whole lot of trouble right now. <laughs> right? It's, it's great that Jesus knew that all scripture applied universally and literally in every situation, especially in the hands of the devil, is not to be done. Because otherwise Jesus would have jumped. He said, oh, it says it right there. Here we go. You know? But the devil has the word and he knows the word and he uses the word against us. And so it takes the word of God plus the spirit of God to equal the truth of God. Let me say that again. It takes the spirit of God with the word of God to get the truth of God. Remember what the scripture said? The letter kills but the Spirit gives life. The decisions that are happening around this topic, is it the letter that we're governing by or is it by the Spirit? The letter kills, the Spirit gives life. And now that we can understand how we can get it wrong, we need to look at the context for those very, very challenging scriptures. And we'll do that the next time. So.